a very personal. Well, it, uh, it's also the feast of Our Lady of Lords. Lord, that I might see, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We've seen that from Septuagisma until Easter, the liturgy symbolizes the Babylonian captivity. And in that light, we've also been considering some of the ways our Babylonian culture targets our concupiscence, which is that rebellion of our sense appetites against the rule of right reason. We've seen that since most of our advertising is set up to appeal to our concupiscence, to appeal specifically to a power that inclines us towards sin, that means that it's set up to tempt us. Besides advertising, it's also easy to see that this applies to a huge amount of what passes for such things as popular music, films in the theater, fashions, etc. Given that one of the most immoral and dangerous forms these attacks take is by way of unbridled uh, appeals and temptations against purity, we spent some time considering the consequences of falling into such sins. We've seen that these sins inflame the passions and that they inflict four levels of darkness on the intellect of anyone who gives himself over to them. Mental blindness, because imagination is carried away by the passions. Rashness in judgment, because a man afflicted by such blindness can't make a clear assessment of what's appropriate in a particular situation. Thoughtlessness, because the resulting blindness and rashness keep such a man from carefully considering and choosing the best of his options. And inconstancy, because such a man is so carried away by his passions, he's actually hindered from doing what his reason tells him ought to be done. We've seen there are also four problems with the will of the lustful man. Self-love, hatred of God, love of this world, and despair of the future life. We've seen that the reason that sinners get so agitated when the church's teaching is brought up is because their, their passions are so inflamed and God's teaching is so threatening to the pleasures that they really are living for that they're at the point where they can scarcely help themselves. And so we have to pray, fast, and intercede for them. We've seen that over the long term, the more these sins are repeated, and the more perverted they are, the more the passions become inflamed and escape the rule of reason. And to the very degree the passions have been repeatedly inflamed and perverted, to that very degree, they're all the more difficult to quiet down and to get back under control. And that's just another way of saying is that the more repeated and the more perverted these sins, the more tightly that sinner is held in bondage to his lust. We've seen that a society like ours, any society, in which millions of people are committing sins against purity will be affected by profound intellectual and spiritual blindness. So here we are in Babylon, surrounded by so many millions in bondage. Millions upon millions, blinded and in bondage. And they love their chains. We've also seen there are only two ways to control men from the outside with force, or from the inside with virtue. And as we all know, to live a life of virtue, the passions simply have to be brought into submission, which is totally impossible if they're constantly being excited. It's totally impossible. And in a society like ours, because of the very force of millions of sinners increasingly unable to control their passions, because of the very force 
of millions of sinners living ever closer to the out of their mind due to passion extreme, we're doomed to either descend into anarchy, which is always followed by tyranny, or the tyranny will be imposed before the anarchy breaks out too much. And finally we asked, what kind of country allows these kind of attacks on its own people? By way of sketching an answer to that question, we'll start today by considering several countries that deliberately employ these kind of attacks on the citizens of other nations. Much of what we'll cover right now we've heard before, but it bears repeating in this context. We'll start with some excerpts from an article published on December 22, 2003 in Newsweek magazine. And as usual throughout this sermon, the quotes have been edited, cut and pasted. Quote, Before the American invasion, Iraq was one of the world's most tightly controlled societies. A committee in the Ministry of Culture kept a strict watch against even mildly naughty movies, magazines, and films. Now Iraqis are making up for what they've missed. And many other Iraqis, young and old, are blaming in America. Some people say the spread of such things is designed to weaken our society, says Colonel Dawood Selman, a police chief in one of Baghdad's roughest districts. Every day we hear from people on the street, not just the religious people, but ordinary ones too. At the adult cinemas, 70 cents buys an all-day ticket and the audience hoots in protest if a non-filthy trailer interrupts the action. Under Saddam, this would have been an automatic six month in jail, says a vendor who keeps ultra-filthy wares in a drawer for special customers at his video shop in Baghdad's Karada district. Now, nothing will happen to us. One young man says it's a big improvement from Saddam Hussein's days. Back then, he says, the only house of ill repute for a poor boy like himself was at a gypsy settlement on the capital's western outskirts. But now, there are plenty of places. He grins, now we have freedom. The regime's vice laws remain on the books, but they're rarely enforced. Immediately after the war, we started raids and arresting promoters and purveyors, says Lieutenant Colonel Omar Zaid, a top Iraqi cop. But the American military police made us release them. After that, the promoters and purveyors understood they had nothing to fear. Most Iraqis say they don't know what to do about the vice explosion. Close quotes. Okay, let's just pause for a moment and ask ourselves a few questions. Under Saddam, the stored material was not available. But under American occupation, it immediately became available. Does freedom mean having essentially unlimited access to the most vile kinds of filth? Is that freedom? Wasn't the name of this war Operation Iraqi Freedom? Is being basted in filth one of the hallmarks of a free society? Haven't we just learned that these kind of sins cause bondage? Isn't bondage the opposite of freedom? 
Given that, as the police chief said, the spread of such things is designed to weaken a society, why would the American military police prevent the Iraqi police from enforcing vice laws? Why would the American military police protect the purveyors, promoters, and peddlers of degenerate filth? What's that all about? Now that article was written December of 2003. Hold those thoughts and let's back up in time from December 2003 to March of 2002. We'll read a few excerpts from a speech given by Dr. E. Michael Jones. Quote, at 4.30 p.m. on March 30, 2002, Israeli military forces occupied the city of Ramallah in the West Bank. Now parenthetically, the West Bank, that's territory that was seized by Israel in 1967. They occupied uh, East Jerusalem over to the current border with Jordan, a ways up from there and all the way down to the Dead Sea. There are about uh, two million Palestinians that lived in the West Bank. As of right now, only about 2% are Christian. And like all Palestinians, they suffer greatly because of the racist apartheid policies of the Israeli government. Bethlehem is in the West Bank. In 1950, Bethlehem and the surrounding villages were 86% Christian. But under Israeli occupation, the Christian population has dropped to 12%. Okay, so at 4.30 p.m. on March 30th, 2002, Israeli military forces occupied the city of Ramal in the West Bank. And they seized three out of the four Palestinian TV stations broadcasting in the area and began broadcasting filth, the very worst kind of filth, over those TV channels. The only Palestinian station not taken over by the Israelis ran a written message at the bottom of its screen warning that, quote, anything currently shown on the other local TV channels has nothing to do with Palestinian programs, but is being broadcast by Israeli occupation forces. We urge parents to take precautions, close quote. The situation in all was made much worse by the fact that Israelis had imposed a curfew enforced by snipers stationed on tall buildings like the local hospital, forcing people to stay indoors, where naturally enough, anyone seeking information about the occupation would turn to the local TV stations." Close quote. Okay, let's just pause for a moment and make sure we understand this. We just got done hearing about how this kind of filth suddenly became available in Iraq after the American invasion, and how the American military police actively prevented the Iraqi police from enforcing vice laws. But in this case, we have the Israeli military imposing a curfew on the Palestinians, and at the same time actually broadcasting this kind of filth over the local TV stations. So let's ask ourselves, why on earth would the Israeli military put the Palestinian people in a curfew and then deliberately broadcast hardcore filth over the Palestinian TV stations? Why would they do that? Well, after last week's sermon, everybody here should be able to easily answer that question. Dr. Jones, now listen to this. Three months earlier, Three months earlier, three months earlier, 
On January 12, 2002, the Islamic Association of Palestine News Agency ran an article claiming that, quote, representatives of the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, and Israeli Shin Beth experts, the Shin Beth is the arm of the Israeli government responsible for security within Israel and occupied territories. Okay, so three months before the Israeli military put Ramallah under curfew, began broadcasting the absolute worst kind of filth over the Palestinian TV stations, on January 12, 2002, the Islamic Association of Palestine News Agency ran an article claiming that, quote, representatives of the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, and Israeli Shen Beth experts have recommended that the relatively conservative Palestinian society be flooded with filth, drugs, and gambling in order to keep Palestinian youths away from adjoining the resistance against Israeli occup occupation and apartheid." Close quote. The idea, according to the IAP report, quote, first came from the Israeli side who suggested that only these things could take Palestinian youths away from their hostile fixation on Israel. Close quote. Okay. So let's walk back through all this. In January 2002, the Israel Islamic Association for Palestinian News Agency reports that experts from the CIA and the Shin Beth are recommending that the relatively conservative Palestinian society be flooded with filth, hardcore filth, drugs and gambling in order to keep Palestinian youths from joining the resistance against Israeli occupation and apartheid. Then just a few months later, in March 2002, the Israeli military does exactly that. It occupies Ramallah, puts the city under curfew, and begins broadcasting the absolute worst kind of filth or Palestinian television stations. It should now be pretty obvious exactly why under the American occupation of Iraq, virtually unlimited access to the most vile kinds of filth immediately became possible. Why the American military police protected the purveyors, promoters, and peddlers of this degenerate filth, and why the American military police prevented the Iraqi police from, from enforcing vice laws. Back to Dr. Jones. During the summer of 2002, former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, of course he's now the current Prime Minister, arrived in America to promote the American invasion of Iraq. But he also advocated American involvement in the use of suggestive or explicit TV programming as a way of subverting the morals of the Islamic world. According to UPI story filed on September 12, 2002, quote, a former Israeli Prime Minister called upon the United States to effect regime change in both Iraq and Iran, prescribing a military invasion to topple the government of Baghdad, and the transmission of ribald television programming via satellite into Persia, where he said the influx of pop culture would prove, prove quote, subversive, close quote, the conservative Islamic regime. Citing the hundreds of thousands of satellite television dishes in Iran, Benjamin Netanyahu told the House Government Reform Committee that the United States could incite a revolution through the use of such Fox broadcasting staples as Melrose Place and Beverly Hills 90210, both of which feature beautiful young people in varying states of undress, 
living glamorous, materialistic lives, engaging in promiscuity. Netanyahu told the committee, quote, this is pretty subversive stuff, close quote. What are we talking about here? Think about this. Experts from intelligence agencies, the CIA and the Shin Bet, recommend the relatively conservative Palestinian society be flooded with filth, with drugs, and with gambling in order to keep the Palestinian youths from joining the resistance against Israeli occupation apartheid. Some months later, we see a concrete example of this tactic being used when Israelis seize Palestinian TV stations and begin broadcasting filth. Some months after that, the House hears testimony from Benjamin Netanyahu, who advocates transmitting provocative or explicit television programs via satellite into Iran because the influx of pop culture would pr prove subversive to the conservative regime. He explicitly states the United States could incite a revolution by using shows from network TV. He gives specific examples of programs produced by the Fox Network. Do not defend the Fox Network to me. And he gives specific examples of programs produced by the Fox Network, which he considers to be so subversive that they could incite such a revolution. Melrose Place in Beverly Hills, 90210. He explains that the reason these shows are so subversive is they feature beautiful young people in varying states of undress, living glamorous, materialistic lives, and engaging in promiscuous behavior. The next year, the U.S. invades Iraq, and following the invasion, the worst kind of filth immediately becomes available, and the American military police actively prevented the Iraqi peace from enforcing vice laws and curtailing the flood of filth in Iraqi society. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about psychological warfare. We're talking about psychological warfare of the most wicked kind. It's so wicked, in fact, it can only be put in one possible category, diabolical. And that is not an exaggeration. This is actually the sin known as diabolical scandal because the people who commit this sin are actually attacking their brothers in exactly the same way as do the demons. We are talking about the deliberate and diabolical military use of filth to demoralize, disrupt, conservative, and relatively stable society. And all it takes to demoralize, disrupt, and destroy a conservative and relatively stable society is to flood it, or allow it to be flooded, with filth, drugs, and gambling. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Well, look around. Look around. Think all this filth, drugs and gambling flooding our society is just completely random. That this stuff just happens. 
Do you? Consider this, quote, in October 2001, the UN General Assembly congratulated the Taliban government of Afghanistan for reducing, with the support of the UN, opium production by 97%. That year, the production of opium, which is used to produce grade four heroin and its derivatives, had been reduced to 185 metric tons. That same year, 2001, there were 189,000 heroin addicts in the United States. 1,779 Americans died as a result of heroin overdose. Under U.S. military occupation, opium production jumped from 185 tons to 9,000 tons in 2017. Under U.S. military occupation, Afghanistan now produces approximately 90% of the world's supply of opium. It is this supply that fuels the massive increase in heroin addiction in the United States. Currently, it's estimated that there are more than 4 million heroin users in the U.S. In 2016, 15,444 six Americans died of heroin overdose, close quote. Under the Taliban, opium production in Afghanistan was reduced 97%, with only 185 tons being produced in 2001. In that year, there were 189,000 heroin addicts in the U.S., 1,000 779 Americans die from heroin overdoses. Under the U.S. military occupation, opium production jumped to 9,000 metric tons in 2017. Under the U.S. military occupation, Afghanistan now produces approximately 90% of the world's illegal supply of opium, the very supply that is fueling the massive increase in heroin addiction in these United States. Current estimates are that there are more than 4 million heroin users in the U.S. 15,446 Americans died from heroin overdoses in 2016. 185 tons under the Taliban, 9,000 tons under the U.S. military. Think all this filth Drugs and gambling flight in our society is completely random. All it takes to demoralize, disrupt, and destroy a conservative and relatively stable society is to flood it or allow it to be flooded with filth, drugs, and gambling. That's all it takes. Well, welcome to Babylon. Welcome to Babylon, and we're the captives. And most of our fellow Catholics have already become Babylonians. And they love their chains. Yeah, they really love their chains.
So hopefully the real nature of our Babylonian captivity is coming into clear focus. And since our concupiscence isn't going to go away, and since our society is only going to get worse, hopefully this all makes it clear how absolutely important it is to be serious, and I mean deadly serious, about really making really real progress in this holy land. Let's get practical. Lent's upon us. It's long since time to get serious. Given our condition and our culture, if we want to get to heaven, we've got to battle our concupiscence, whether we like it or not. So how do we do that? With prayer and penance. In regards to prayer, we'll mention two essential practices. First essential practice, the three Hail Marys. Every morning, when you get up, say three Hail Marys, ask Our Lady to give you holiness and purity during that day. Every night, before you go to bed, say three Hail Marys, ask Our Lady to give you holiness and purity during that night. Now, this practice was recommended by St. Matilda, St. Gertrude the Great, St. Philip Neri. St. Leonard of Port Maurice, St. Anthony of Padua, St. Alphonsus Liguori, they're both doctors of the church, many other saints. If you stick to this practice, you will get perfect purity of your state in life. It works miracles. It takes 40 seconds when you're going slow. I've timed it. Second essential practice, the Holy Rosary. Our Lady was not bored in heaven and wondering what was going on down in Portugal in 1917. She's our mother. She came down to warn us and to tell us to say our rosary every day. Think back to the Passion. When you're doing the Stations of the Cross, look at that. Who stays at the foot of the cross with our Lord? The ones who stay close to Our Lady and no one else. Everyone else ran away, even St. Peter. Even St. Peter. And as we enter deeper into the passion and mystical body of Christ, if we want to stay with the church, we have to stay close to Our Lady. So you want to chain yourself to the foot of the cross with your rosary. You want to tie yourself to Our Lady's apron strings with your rosary. Say your rosary day in and day out, no matter what. So those are the two essential practices of prayer. The three homilies, morning and night, and the Holy Rosary every day. Of course, you can do more, but you should never do less. What about penance? Now that we all have some decent understanding of the problem of concupiscence, now that we all understand that in Adam, we lost that perfect and total control over our imaginations and over our senses, we can understand the rationale for the penances we ought to do and why we ought to do them. We can see exactly why it's so important to have a holy Lent, especially in this Babylonian culture we're in. There's a really easy principle to work from. We need to discipline our imaginations. We need to discipline our senses in order to keep them from leading us into sin. So we need to discipline our imaginations. We need to discipline our senses. First, our imaginations. This Lent, do two things with your imagination, one positive and one negative. On the positive side, 
Fill your imagination with holy images, good images. Read good Catholic books, lives of the saints, scripture, good books written by saints. On the negative side, reduce the amount of time listening to worldly music, worldly radio shows, watching worldly TV programs, worldly movies. This doesn't mean to avoid sinful things, that's always the case. The goal here is to limit the amount of unnecessary secular images floating around in our imagination so we can spend this brief period of land with images of holy things instead. It's our tithe on the year. This will also help, help us reduce uh, distractions during Mass and prayer. Let's get serious here. We're Catholics. It's high time we could hallucinate about the society we live in in our country. If there's one thing we can take away from what we just heard in the past few weeks, it's that this is an extremely dangerous place, morally speaking. We just heard that the standard Fox Network TV programs from well over a decade ago were considered to be so subversive as to be able to incite a revolution in a relatively conservative society. So we need to think, and really think, about our TV use. If someone here is using their TV as a screen for watching quality videos, check on storm warnings, you know, stuff like that, legitimate things, that's fair enough. But if your TV viewing includes the kind of programming that the Prime Minister of Israel suggested our government use for purposes of psychological warfare, and we're not just talking about programs, we're also talking about the advertisements, then you're in grave danger if your viewing has that. You need to fix your TV. So you need to fix your TV so it's not pouring raw spiritual sewage into your living room and into your souls. If that's the kind of thing that's going on there, fix your TV, and I mean it. I don't care if it's a 10-gauge, a 12-gauge, a 410, a rock, but you fix that thing. If you can't show it to the Blessed Virgin Mary, then what are you doing watching it? Because she's there. Get a filter on every computer and every smartphone. No exceptions. Frankly, I'm of the mind that if at all possible, you should have phones with no internet access or you get access blocked as part of your plan, if at all possible. Have a filter on every phone, every computer, every tablet, and the woman of the house should have the password. Mothers, you need to listen to me right now. This is important, and please do not assume your little Johnny won't ever get into trouble. Your little Johnny is a little boy. And over the years, I've been saying this thing over and over like a broke record. And you can't believe how many times some crying mother shows up telling me, even though she heard the priest say this umpteen gazillion times, she just knew that her little Johnny would never do that. Well, her little Johnny isn't the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so she ignores the priest until she finds out little Johnny had been doing that, and then it's too late. It's like Humpty Dumpty. Parents make excuse after excuse, and there are their kids in total bondage fallen into hell. Without explaining these details, uh, you also need to understand that a significant percentage of those kind of uh, materials have specific demons associated with it, so that anyone that willingly watches it by that very fact opens a door and invites that demon to have dominion over them. And that demon is going to honor that invitation and come into that viewer's life, and it's his own fault. And guess what? The particular websites are not marked Warning, get a filter on every computer, every tablet, every smartphone.
put the computer in a public place, not in a private room, make darn sure it's situated so the screen can be easily seen, even have mirrors behind it, okay? Public place, get the filter on, the woman of the house should have a password, the internet should be shut off, and the smartphone's locked up before midnight at night. Parents make excuse after excuse, and there their kids are in total bondage, falling into hell. So, the discipline of imagination, try to read some good Catholic spiritual reading every day, and limit the intake of unnecessary secular images. What about discipline of senses? Every day we ought to perform at least one little discipline for each of our senses. With the eyes, mortify your eyes by not looking at something you want to look at. Delay something you'd like to look at. You read a letter, you get to an interesting part of the book, you set it down for five minutes. Discipline the ears, use the off switch on the radio. Limit your intake of popular music. Seriously, it's important to realize that all these problems flowing from sins of lust also arise. It's a proportionally more muted form and the other, from that other great source of disordered passion, temptation, perversion that everyone's bathed in in this Babylonian culture, and that's the music. Rock, uh, roll, rap, hip-hop, a brockabilly, it doesn't matter. We have to be very careful not to let the Pied Pipers of our culture mislead us. Here's an easy test. Unless you listen principally to Baroque music, and I mean Baroque specifically, not classical, or chant polyphony, try giving up your music for Lent and listening to Baroque or chant polyphony. If this is already getting you agitated thinking about it, it means your concupiscible appetite is already too attached uh, to your music. You've got disordered passions. Baroque music actually reorders your passions, but that's a, a topic for another day. And by way of anecdote, in my pastoral experience, it's been a lot easier getting guys to give up the girl they're sitting with than to give up their bad music. That's how tight a grip it has on them. It's serious. Discipline the taste. St. Thomas says the devil will cease to tempt people to impurity once they've conquered temptations of the appetite. St. Adam of Avellini says he wants advanced to perfection, should be serious about mortifying his appetite. St. Francis de Sales says we do this by eating to live, but not living to eat. So we can grow in our virtue by mortifying our appetite for food and drink. And even in our weak times, people still set out to do this during Holy Lent. There's no way we can mortify our appetites by only observing the current legislation that's binding on the Latin part of the church. Here's the current legislation that binds us. It binds us under the pain of mortal sin. All those who are 14 and up have to abstain from meat on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and all six of the Fridays of Lent. All those from 18 to 60 have to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. So all those who are 14 and up have to abstain from meat on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and all the five days of Lent. All those from 18 to 60 have to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Binds under the pain of mortal sin. We do have to obey this legislation because it does bind under the pain of mortal sin, but it isn't enough to help us grow in virtue. It's not even close. Not even close. So here's a few suggestions. First off, everyone who is physically capable of it could follow the traditional fast. One main meal, two other small collations, that don't add up to a full meal, and not just on Ash Wednesday or Good Friday, but all through Lent, Monday through Saturday, never on Sunday. One main meal, two other small collations that don't add up to a full meal. If you follow that, you really look forward to Sundays and Easter. What about people that can't do this, pregnant women, the elderly, those with medical conditions, and so forth? Here are a few more suggestions. Eat a little less, 
You've eaten enough when you could eat uh, just a little bit more. For example, when you're, when you're grown, you could eat maybe one more, the volume of one more piece of bread. But right then, when you could eat that tad more, you quit eating. Take a little bit more of something you don't like at every meal, a little bit less of something you do like at every meal. Season one piece of food in a way you find highly annoying, or don't season a piece of food that you want to season. Give up sweets completely. And then after Easter, reduce it slightly. So if you ordinarily put two uh, scoops of sugar in your coffee, put only one in. These kind of practices uh, will automatically strengthen your children in the virtue of holy purity and help them control their tempers too. So those are a few possibilities for discipline and taste. Discipline the sense of smell, we just do this by putting up with whatever odors we caught during the day. Discipline the touch. St. Augustine says, mortify your body and you'll conquer the devil. How? Well, you can work on your posture, you can sit without slouching, without leaning back, take your shower at a temperature that isn't quite like you like it, then at the end of your shower, turn on the cold water and turn it off one or two, three glory beasts. Don't do that if you're, gonna, if you're sick or weak, but it's a good practice, okay? Put a small pebble or your bead in one shoe one day, the other one the next day. Keep your car or your house temperature a little on the cold side, okay? That's a few ideas for getting your passions under control. The general idea is just toughen up. Okay, let's close. We're all immersed to varying degrees in an atmosphere. Saturated with scientifically designed sensual temptations. We're all captives in Babylon. And for the most part in our society, our neighbors in bondage have forged their own chains. They've forged their own chains, one link at a time giving in to their passions over and over and over again. And they love their chains. So you better learn to lead your passions, or your passions are going to lead you.